Hey guys, how's it going? Um, welcome to Evolutionary Medicine. Um, I'm really psyched for, for this week's topic because uh, we're talking about human superpowers. And uh, really, we mean really cool adaptations. Yeah, um, evolved adaptations. Yes. I guess most adaptations are evolved. Yes, yes they are. <laughs> I believe all of them Perhaps are, all of in them, fact. Yeah. <laughs> And yes, we are joined by Dr. Joe and Dr. Coffee again this week. Hola. Um, so we, we have, have a, a saying trio. We're sciencey. Right. That's right. Yep. Came prepared. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we're talking about adaptation today. So perfectly timed for for the release of of Avengers: Infinity War, which I just went and saw last night. Um, and what's the verdict? Uh, I really liked it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> really liked it actually. Um, it Did was. Did you like it better than Thor Ragnarok? Um, mm, good question. Thor had his shirt off a lot. My wife liked that part. Yeah? yeah. Yes, that's true. He has his shirt off a lot less in this one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, if I was Thor, I wouldn't even own a shirt. I know, right? Why right. bother? Yeah. Um, the hammer. Yeah, you got the hammer. Yeah. That's all you need. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, mm, it's a very different movie. Honestly, I'm not even sure I could compare. Cause like Ragnarok and like the Guardians movies have a similar sort of campy fun feel to them. Yeah. And this certainly has those elements, but it's, it is definitely an Avengers movie and they do a lot to kind of weave stories in with each other because they've got to merge everything in this one. And it's, it is a pretty ambitious feat, and they did a really good job at it, honestly. So, All right. I liked it. I think it's worth seeing. It's a little long, but it's not not. Uh, so, in not order too to long. enjoy it, do you have to have pre watched all the previous ones? Um, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Maybe not all of them. Mm -hmm. There's definitely some backstory in there that you would benefit from knowing about, but if you've seen. If you've seen Ragnarok, the most recent Guardians, and probably Civil War, you're probably okay. Maybe okay. The Last Avengers too, Age of Ultron. You're, and well, Black Panther's always good anyway, so those five. All right, so I got five, <laughs> Only five movies, movies to do as Only a five movies. That would be preparation. Marathon. Be what if you don't do like superhero movies? Yeah. If you don't like superhero then movies, there's something wrong with you, you and probably, go watch some other blog. Yeah, but, yeah, like you probably will not enjoy any of these. Um, I don't know. Although I have heard some people say that some of the more recent ones that are kind of more fun uh, are a little bit better suited for people who aren't super into superheroes. Um, like so, like Ragnarok yeah. and Guardians are so, a little bit more palatable to the non-Marvel fans. So I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not a huge mm -hmm. Marvel superhero kind of guy. Hey, but I, I love Thor. Ragnarok, I yeah. loved it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was really great. I, I like Deadpool a ton, but I think it would be a mistake for it to become a genre. Let Deadpool be Deadpool. Everybody else do their own thing. They're doing uh -huh. the sequel. It yeah. comes out uh -huh. soon, and like I've heard some some mixed thoughts on it because the first one was awesome. I really enjoyed Deadpool. But I think if everybody bandwagons on that, yeah, right, it's, it's going to kill. If all the, of them kind are of like fast. extra crude, R-rated, yeah. you know, hmm. it's just a very different thing. I think Suicide Squad made the mistake <clears throat> of trying to double down on that sort of thing. I did totally. not see it, but from what I've heard, it was yeah, awful. yeah, it was not very good. But Black Panther was like easily one of the better ones, probably one of the best, I should say. Um, it was just lovely. So if you haven't seen Black Panther, definitely do yourself a favor and right. go see that. <clears throat> yeah, so these um, are, so we have our fictional yes, superheroes. And fictional superheroes. Humans or... Even, even mutants, if gods we talk about X-Men. Super and mutants with, uh, yeah, yeah, superpowers. So, so the question is, are there real life humans with superpowers on planet Earth? That's right. Yeah. And, and that's what adaptation And what is. constitutes superpowers? Like, for example, there are almost 8 billion of us, say 7.5 billion. Somebody is the best out of 7.5 billion people at whatever, right? Somebody can punch the hardest out of 7.5 billion people. Automatically, that's true. Sure. You know? Just human variation. Yeah, so you can measure any particular trait, and you're going to find an individual who's, or even a group of individuals that might be better at that. Mm -hmm. So what constitutes being outside of what we'd expect the normal range of variants to be? What makes, what makes them of interest to us in this context? Well, I think in this context of evolutionary medicine, 
I have used the example of human adaptation to high altitude in my class pretty much since day one when oh, I started yeah. teaching this class. And it's just a great, great example of relatively modern human evolution. And I would say the populations we're yeah. going to talk about today are populations who mm -hmm. share an attribute different yeah. from other populations. That's different than saying, here's the tallest guy in the world, here's the heaviest right. person yeah. or something. And it's, it's, not, it's, it's also not about outliers so much as it's about an actual shift in human variation. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about traits that allow people to do amazing things right. that you can't necessarily tell just by looking at them, right? They don't yeah, have, for sure. you know, Wolverine talons, that sort of no. thing, you know? So this is, <laughs> these are people that, that, that you might, you wouldn't notice that they, you wouldn't notice their superpowers. They're, they're Clark Kent in that way, you know? Yes, that's right. So all, all you need is a pair of glasses and you can't tell at all. That's right. Good question here from Wahadi. Is Usain Bolt a superhero or Michael Phelps? Or anybody who's kind of at the top of their sport. If you've seen Bolts, yeah. that's a superhero. The Bolts? Oh, you've seen Bolt. Never mind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a minute. Coffee is always one step ahead. We're <laughs> <laughs> almost that behind. <laughs> Stu says that he's mm -hmm. convinced that Dr. Coffee has an adamantium skeleton. Thank you. Yeah. I'm You're like, trying. Uh, trying to get him out. Yep. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, do we, would we consider those kinds of people to be essentially well, you know what? real there, world there superhero? Are, there are certain groups of people that, that have, we'll say running, that seem yeah. to have some perhaps remarkable running ability. Mm -hmm. um, and and maybe, that, maybe that counts. I don't know. We'll, we'll throw that out there. I looked up the Tarahumara Indians. Mm -hmm. They're a Native, Native American group. Oh, they're not really. <clears throat> they're, they're in Mexico. Right. And they live in the Sierra Tarahumara. Is like a, it's the Copper Canyon, the Grand Canyon of Mexico, right. and they famously run vast distances. And uh, there's uh, a book name that I'm blanking on. I, it's called Indian Runner, isn't it? The one I'm thinking of. So there's, maybe, there's probably a variety of books on, on the Tarahumara, um, but uh, where they where they basically recruited some of these folks to run in marathons in the United States and elsewhere, and they they were very very successful. Uh, and traditionally, they run in, in little in Warachi sandals. You know, oh they, yeah, yeah, that's wear, right. They don't wear running I, shoes. I feel like yeah. I have seen something about that. Just yeah. about the sandals. I, that sounds uh -huh. familiar. Yeah, I didn't realize that was the Tarahumara though. So with super athletes, one way we could think about them is to divide them into two boxes. In one box, you have elite athletes, but they all perform close to each other right. at the elite level. Yep. So Lance Armstrong, yeah, never mind the bad history part, but Lance Armstrong and the other people in his league were all bunched very close together. Right. Right. On the other hand, I recall reading, I don't follow sports at all, by the way, so I only know a few names, period. Mm -hmm. But I do remember one year reading about Wayne Gretzky, and in that year, the number two guy in hockey had scored half as many Oh, wow. Total goals as Wayne Gretzky. That's a gigantic leap. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are people who really stand out, mm -hmm. even from an elite pack, and there are other people who get into the elite pack, which, by the way, is kind of sad. If you think about it, if you ever get a silver medal in the Olympics, you'll be one person out of half of 7.5 billion, but you'll be remembered as number two. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. The guy who yeah. didn't get the gold. Right. Yeah. There's, that no, is, there's, there's no fairness. Yeah. So anyway, so I looked up I looked up some of these groups, and I think that you can. It's almost like stereotyping. We can say that there are some groups that have uh, East Africans and distance running and that sort of thing. Um, that there are certain groups that seem to perform better at on the on the world stage. Mm -hmm. And if you make the argument that that is part of, um, it's a lifestyle uh, that has been that has been necessary for success in that environment right. mm -hmm. over a very long period of time, then it's possible that there could be an evolutionary superpower for that group. Yeah, for sure. Like Maybe. Body proportions. Yeah, but I, but I, I, like I, I, I couldn't find any good data on this. It's not been as well studied as some of these other things. So the, the, the work that we're going to look at today, um, you, you sort of have to be successful. If you're living on the Himalayan plateau, you have to be successful at dealing with yep. hypoxia and lack of oxygen. Otherwise, you're dead or you don't yep. have babies. Right. right. Really, you don't yeah. have babies. You don't need to be an elite skier to be a successful Canadian. Right. In several Maybe. places <laughs> around the world, though, you see a difference in leg structure between people uh, who come from mountainous areas and people who come from plains areas. 
All right. You see the longer legs with the longer shin bones mm -hmm. in people who come from plains areas and shorter, more muscular legs in people who come from mountainous areas. Yep. Those really just, true. well, yeah. I, would, I don't know that I would say yeah. plains and mountains. How would that, you? That, mm -hmm. makes, that makes it seem like it's a, an altitude thing where it's I'm more of a latitude. Broken a terrain versus terrain. flat terrain maybe might be a better way well, to say Well, that's probably yeah. something that mm -hmm. is relevant there. Yeah. But we also yeah. just see those body proportion differences based on latitude. People who come from colder climates tend oh, well, to have yeah. shorter stockier As you do with limbs. other species, other animals right. as well. Yeah, something. and then like yeah. you need better, better heat dissipation in hotter, more equatorial climates, so you end up with longer, leaner body proportions. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. <clears throat> That's a big, long one. Very, very well yeah. documented across human populations. So yeah. So the bottom line is that for certain traits in dealing with the environment, things like cold or mountain terrain or extremes of altitude, uh, heat stress, or living underwater for, for a big chunk of the day, uh, there might be some benefits to having specialized adaptations that allow you to deal with that. So Yeah. So yeah. Um, and we've got some cool ones to talk about today. We have some cool ones. Yeah, I feel yeah. like you're kind of on fire to tell us about these populations. I know. So let's why do why it. Give us a little let's bit of that. do it. All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's charge in. Okay. Let's, let's bring up our slides. All right. <clears throat> we have Mammoth Man. Mammoth Man. The question really is, how long do you have to be exposed to something to have an evolved adaptation that allows you to better deal with that? You know, uh, and, and really, and we have to ask ourselves when we when we see a trait, is it really an evolved genetic adaptation, or is it something else? Is it just is it developmental plasticity? We've talked we right. touched on that in previous episodes. Is it just kind of the use it or lose it phenomenon, where you know if you're out there hiking in the mountains, you're going to have must more muscular legs, which has nothing to do with an you know an evolved and trait. Do right, we want to differentiate? Moment, moment demand. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm done. That's Do okay. we want to differentiate between a selective function, selecting for more of the tall allele versus short alleles, mm -hmm. or, do, or an accumulation of mutations when we, in this context, do we want to differentiate between those when we describe Well, evolution? the mutations is the raw material uh, from which right. natural selection works. You have to have the genetic raw material that, that selection can act on in order to produce the mutation. And most that, of the time sorry, that adaptation. Is, yeah, most of the time that is mutation. And so that takes time. Right. You have to have a big population. You have to have time over which uh, selection acts <clears throat> uh, to see some of these things. And that's really, that's precisely what we see in the, in the high altitude group. So some of this stuff we think has evolved in the last, since the Pleistocene, since the Mammoth Man. Yep, I love how <laughs> it says we never publish a dull story at the so, bottom. <laughs> it sounds like a good book, right? What does it say? A fast-moving yarn? What? Yarn? Does that really say yarn? I think it says yarn. A fast-moving yarn of man's struggle for survival? Is this a different meaning of yarn that I'm not familiar with? Bye, Crecky. When I, was, when I was a whippersnapper, we said yarn all the time. <laughs> I'm like, what? But, all right, we'll go. An archaic that. term referring yarn to a short story. anecdotal story. Apparently, yarn means story. I did not know that. I learned a new thing. <clears throat> All right. Anyway. Next one. <laughs> okay. Whenever somebody says, let me tell next, you about yarn. the time I, they're hitting into a yarn. <laughs> Sp oh, spinning a yarn means telling a tall story. Sure. All right. There so this, go. So my own personal altitude, you know, personal best, was when I took this photograph. This is a place called Yanasacha, which is a black volcanic band of rock on the volcano Cotopaxi. I did not summit because at this point... Uh, on this mountain, I was getting a serious headache. Mm. I was I was tired too, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I was super fatigued. Didn't really want to go further. Um, you can see in the background that's my neighbor and friend Diane Rimple, and she has blue lips. She really had the uh, blue lips. Yeah. So we were hypoxic, and we uh, we decided that was that was our turnaround spot. Yep. Uh, Katie, who's in the in the foreground here, Katie Swank, she actually made it to the top, as did a lot of folks on this trip. She's um, the marathoner. With oxygen or no? No, this is all without oxygen. Okay. So uh, the benefit of climbing a high peak in Ecuador is mm -hmm. that it's equatorial. And yep. because of the way the, of the world you know, spins, yeah. the atmosphere is actually thicker at the, at the equator mm -hmm. than it is at the poles. So that. it's much harder to, to climb, say, Denali, which is you know, at a much higher Much latitude. higher, right. Yeah. Centrifugal <clears throat> force might take a couple of grams off you. Yeah, <laughs> it might <laughs> help, help, help get, get you, spin yep. you up the mountain. Right. right, exactly. So we had people that had 
um, full-blown altitude sickness and had to be evacuated uh, on this trip. We had uh, a woman with bad peripheral edema, all of her went into a capillary leak syndrome. Um, other people that were nauseated and, and had to go down. And I just felt like I had a migraine. <laughs> I mean, I just really wanted to get to lower altitude. You know, all the and, points you just yeah. gained on the toughness scale, you gave up on the smartness <laughs> scale. How did this look like a good idea? Right. So listen, that's, that's a good point. High altitude mountaineers and scuba divers, when you do MRIs on their brains, mm -hmm. they actually lose, uh, you see, neuronal loss. Oh, and wow. Increased brain shrinkage in, the, in these groups. Dang. So not only is it risky, by being hit by a rock or falling <clears throat> into a crevasse, um, or when you're diving, getting <laughs> bubbles in your blood, but you actually lose lose brain cells by doing these things. I'm so glad my ancestors were wimps. <laughs> well, yeah. So that, that that's probably true of all of our ancestors. They were wimps to some degree. Yeah. So, but the bottom line is that altitude is a not a normal environment for us lowlanders to live in. We're not adapted to deal with it, and we get sick as a result. There's full-blown sickness. We get high-altitude cerebral edema. Hopefully nobody in our group had that. Um, high-altitude pulmonary edema, right. and then just acute mountain <clears throat> sickness, which is just a low-grade version of both of those things. You get some respiratory symptoms, you get some headache, you don't want to eat because you're, you're anorectic, and you, you, know, you have sleep, di sleep disturbance, you can't sleep at night, and that is how we define acute mountain sickness. And the only thing you can really do for that is to just get lower, right? Well, that's the best thing you can do. Yeah. You can treat it with oxygen. Uh, they have okay. little portable hyper, hyperbaric chambers that oh, is no like, looks like a mummy bag, but it's got it's got a little window in it, and you can pump up the pressure How and funny. simulate being at a lower altitude. Uh, so that works. And there are some drugs that we can use. Wow! But I think that's kind of beyond the scope of, of this. Sure. Unless unless our, unless uh, you know our. our the advantage of a vacation like this yeah, yeah, you know. is that this is what it takes for you to come back to 14-hour-a-day emergency room shifts and go, what a relief, I'm glad to be home. That's right. <laughs> no, but listen, this was a great, fun trip. There was a bunch of us actually from the university that went down there. We had an awesome time, you know, the cute mountains, mountain cycling. The parts you can remember. That's right. <laughs> Man, it looks... Not that fun, but maybe a little fun. You know, interestingly, uh, this is a bit of an aside, but because of global warming, the snow and the ice and the, and the glaciers on Cotopaxi are receding. Like oh, wow. they were, you could tell evidence that they'd receded a lot when we were there. And that was about ten years ago, and now they're they're but even. It's way worse. It's yeah. worse, and so the fact that some of the snow weight is off the mountain mm -hmm. has increased the volcanic activity of, of this is an oh. active volcano. It's, it's got a little caldera. There's smoke coming off the top of it. Dang. And so it's, it's actually becoming more dangerous as a result. Yeah. Back when the Bering Strait yeah. story was more unquestioned than it is now, right. mm -hmm. I always visualize these people migrating across the land bridge. And one group turned south, and one group turned north. And I'm convinced that for the group that turned north, that guy's name, their leader's name mm -hmm. in the Inuit language means idiot. <laughs> Warmer temperatures, please. But the Ecuador thing is, is, is worth talking about because there are people that live not at 18,000 feet, but there are people that live well above 10,000 feet right. or you know, three or 4,000 meters that are living there permanently and they seem to do okay. So then the question is, is that a, are they acclimatized the way that we right. can, we lowlanders can become acclimatized to, to working out at high altitude? Uh, or is this a genetic adaptation? And people have, by and large, come to the conclusion that the Andeans do something special, which we'll get to. All right. Special. Yeah. Oh, here's well, our... This is, this is a background... Big headache mountain. Yeah, this is an evolutionary medicine talk. So, you know, the first time that the medical condition of mountain sickness was described, 37 BC, this was when it was written down wow. in Chinese literature by a guy by the name of Tu Kin. He's an official. And he described a Himalayan peak where uh, that was known as Big Big Headache Mountain. Dang. It makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, sure. And the Han Chinese, the dominant ethnic group in China, uh, they are not genetically adapted to do well at altitude, unlike other groups like the Tibetans and uh, other folks like the Nepalese. Is Mount Olympia tall enough for this effect? I'm thinking about the idea How that gods live on top oh. of mountains. Yeah. Could it be that people interpreted these increasing symptoms as a kind of magical stay away mm. signal. That's, that's an a, interesting that's thought. A very interesting thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So maybe the hypoxemia mm. of high altitude, before it gives you the headache, it gives you some kind of a, a religious experience. And this is how Zeus really? says no yeah. solicitors. Like a, like right. a euphoria yeah. kind of yeah. thing? Yeah. Or? It might. 
How about hallucinations? Are there any hallucinations associated? Well, it can with do that too, depending on what you eat. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, yeah. just from the hypoxia. I think maybe. by the time you're getting towards hallucinations, you're um, you're headed towards serious badness. You're not, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe you know they're they're hallucinating. Fasting the and gods exhaustion, on though, which often goes on, uh, which are often part of spirit quest, <laughs> can lead to hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Huh? That's true. That's interesting. Um, wow, 37 BC. That's pretty cool. Uh, I was there. What do we got here? Brain, lungs, blood. So we're going to talk about, so these are the, the main things that, uh, the, the top two are things that cause problems with altitude. There's a, a issue called high altitude cerebral edema. Your brain swells, fluid accumulates in your brain. This leads to headache at first, and then staggering inability to walk then coma, and then it's game over. That's kind of serious. Then no, the, uh, the, lung, the lung things are, are just as bad in that you can get fluid in your lungs. What's kind that's of, the edema, right? That's the edema. <clears throat> um, the, the, as far as the blood goes, that's the top ones I've mentioned are for the acute mountain sickness. There's also something called chronic mountain sickness, or Monge's disease. Ooh. And Monge's disease basically involves way too many red blood cells. And it sludges in your vasculature. And it, it, it actually can cause congestive heart failure. Um, oh, wow. can cause stroke-like symptoms. Um, it's the equivalent of like the cyclists that, that shoot up EPO, and they get too many um, red blood cells, and they get pulmonary emboli or strokes. Oh, man. It's polycythemia so, for your next Scrabble game. Polycythemia. <laughs> yeah. Here's another one. Excessive erythrocytosis. Because Ooh. the Greek word, I think, for red cell Ooh, I'll is that raise you erythrocyte. <laughs> but now we've got a plethora. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is also where we tend to see the adaptations, too. Should I hold off on, on that? So yeah, moving into that? Let's, let's get into that. Okay. So it causes both the disease and, it causes, <clears throat> and there's the adaptations are involved both the blood and the lungs yep. and the brain, all those things. Yep. So it kind of, it, it's full circle. What causes problems in us, have, these problems have been solved. There are, have been, puzzles have been solved evolutionary by, evolutionarily by three different groups of people. And it produces, you know, in, in, in some ways it's convergent adaptation uh, mm -hmm. or convergent evolution because these groups have solved a problem of altitude in three different ways. Right, independently of each so, other. And the three different groups I'm talking about, they're the Andeans in South America, they are the Tibetans <laughs> mostly, uh, and other, other groups in the, in the oh, Himalayan nice. Plateau, and then there are the Ethiopians that live in the high altitude regions of Ethiopia. Yep. Yeah, but fun stuff. Yeah, very cool. So keep, um, keep, the, keep those organs and blood lines. Oh, we'll, uh, we'll, skip, we'll skip the gut. Okay, well, let's move on from the gut. the gut. The gut's important because you stop eating at high altitude. Mm -hmm. And, I, and you know, we keep talking about the microbiome. Problems. So let's throw a little microbiome in here. Sure. You get a leaky gut there. at altitude, at extreme altitude. Your really? gut can't deal. And the little microbes, huh. they float out of the gut into the bloodstream. That's not good. It's probably not a good idea. Not good. No so good. that's why you don't want to eat, right? Anyway, that makes sense to me. <clears throat> so, a little Headache. bit about how these things cause problems. Uh, in us, when, let's just, I think it's actually useful to think about what happens when you have a stroke, or what happens when you have a little bit of brain injury. Let's imagine you have damage to your brain. That part of your brain is deprived of oxygen and glucose, and so your right. brain, in that little area where, you're, where it's not getting enough blood flow, it compensates by opening up the pipes. It, it cranks them open, so acute hypoxia makes the pipes bigger. And so you deliver more um, <clears throat> blood to that part of your brain. So this happens uh, with hypoxia generally. And I, I tell you, it's adaptive for us, us lowlanders, if we have a brain injury sure. or if we have uh, a, a stroke. Like for example, um, nitroglycerin, older vasodilator, yeah. uh, but like is still sometimes given in uh, I guess emergencies, you know, you might have a grandparent who has to carry it around in case of an emergency mm -hmm. or something like that. And it can give really insane headaches. Mm -hmm. And it's because of this exactly. exact reason. You know what? Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> I'm going to use that now. Yeah, it's, that's, it's, that's a, that's a, it's a big, big side effect that, that people talk yeah. about with nitroglycerin. All right, so you open up the pipes, you get a headache. <clears throat> so this, this is what happens. And, and to the extreme, you open up the pipes enough and you end up having a little bit of capillary leak syndrome 
and your mm -hmm. brain swells, all right? It's a very simplified yep. way of looking at the pathophysiology. But what is adaptive for us in, in an acute, you know, small brain injury or a small stroke is highly maladaptive at altitude for us. We're not, we're not, it, we're not coping with this very well. In uh, fact, I like some of the language you used on your blog where yeah. you said, um, because the mechanism is different, using the same solution for both of them is the problem. There, our body expects the mechanism to be anemia, so it responds as if the problem were uh, an oxygen uh, capacity issue. When the problem is that there's not enough environmental <clears throat> oxygen, we don't have a fix for that because in a normal natural environment, unless you're underwater, that's not going to happen to you or unless you go up a very tall mountain. Yeah. So in other words, evolution has shaped our physiology, us lowlanders, to expect that we have a relatively thick atmosphere right. and a decent partial pressure of oxygen. And that when the breath, the, when we breathe in a, a breath of air, that's going to have a, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of oxygen yes. molecules. Those oxygen molecules are halved when you're climbing up to, uh, up to Everest. Oh, yeah. And if you're living at 12,000 feet um, or 4,000 meters, then, yeah, the amount of oxygen that's available to your bloodstream is, is far, far less. So we, that's a mismatch for us. We are mismatched genetically to deal with that. And, and that, but listen, the thing that I think is cool and hasn't gotten enough attention is the fact that, that this reflects normal physiology. What causes problems for us is right. normal when we're here at, at a normal uh, atmospheric pressure. Aeon says that, that they took their probiotics today. Oh, man. Thanks. I did too. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've had my Greek yogurt and I had There you a, go. Yeah, That's my, all you really need. My homemade yogurt. Yeah, yeah. And my kombucha. Yeah, there you go, double dose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so that's the headache. That's the headache. Oh, there's the, oh, there's here the stroke. We go. That's scary. Yeah. You don't want that. You do but, not want that. But we can move on. Uh, what is this? These are alveoli. Oh, these are lungs. Where the We're process going into lungs, is the right? reverse of what we just described. <clears throat> coffee? Right. That's right. Nice. The problem for us is not that the pipes are getting too big, the problem is that the pipes squeeze down. Yep. So in your lungs. So your pulmonary arterioles, when they sense not enough oxygen, they do the opposite. They squeeze down. And they do this. It makes, actually makes perfect sense mm -hmm. that they do this. Mm -hmm. All right? Because, again, this is good for us. It's adaptive and beneficial <coughs> for your pulmonary arteries to do this if you have a pneumonia. Let's imagine I've got a left lower lobe pneumonia. It's full of pus and fluid, but the rest of my lungs are working great. We're going to want to deliver blood to the rest of my lungs so I can oxygenate and I can actually breathe okay. So I think the next slide might you, show that. You don't want to deliver blood past alveoli that have low oxygen because then deoxygenated blood returns to the heart. That's called a right to left shunt when that happens and it's a bad thing. So the alveolar capillaries are designed to clamp down and limit blood flow if the proximate alveolus has a low oxygen in it. Normally, when we're in the world that has 21% oxygen at a partial pressure of, what is it at sea level, 70-ish, 80-ish, um, that's all the correct answer. But when the environment itself has a low partial pressure of oxygen, all the alveoli at the same time are saying, no room at the end, go somewhere else. Right. And that's why you wind up with pulmonary hypertension. None of the alveoli are open for business at that point because they all think it's somebody else's problem. Exactly. Yeah. Said, said very, very well. Too, too true of an analogy of many mm -hmm. things these days. <laughs> all right. So it's good for you in pneumonia. And pictured here is little, right. little, little alveolus where there's pus in it. So yeah, why would you want to send all your blood to, get, to pick up oxygen at that part of the damaged lung? You wouldn't, right? So again, the blood gets shifted elsewhere. And you have healthier alveoli that can do it. But if every single alveolus is experiencing hypoxia, then you get the next slide. Interestingly, you can reverse this with a vasodilator. And one that will work for this is Viagra, yeah. which also keeps guys from rolling down the hill. Mm -hmm. I did not know that. I guess I've never really <laughs> thought about Viagra as a vasodilator. There you go. And it's it actually, actually used for this. It actually works on the, you know, the tissue level uh, on nitric oxide. So it opens up the pipes. So, but Viagra is, it's like, 
it, it, it targets a particular area, obviously. Or is it but just... But it works on the lungs, too. It is, it, it is lungs and... So there are actually being like designed for the to replace nitroglycerin for cardiac uh, yeah. use. Really? Well, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. I didn't know that. They weren't actually I knew it was a mistake. A, like, they weren't here's working this, on erectile dysfunction. Yeah, yeah, I knew it was a mistake. This pesky side effect. They're like, wait a second. Billion dollar industry. Wow, that's so funny. So, so the but picture does here it, does it vasodilate yeah. everywhere? Is what I'm asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so mm -hmm. it's just so. Do other vasodilators have the same potential side effect? Then I don't know why, but Viagra is one that has been used for this mm -hmm. particular problem. Right. Um, so there are different receptors in different parts of our body, mm -hmm. but I haven't looked closely into whether Viagra has a more profound effect in pulmonary hypertension than sure. in other kinds of vasoconstriction. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Mike Sy says, I wonder who the test patient was who said, hey, doc, I'm sort of getting a boner. <laughs> 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 like, yeah, how do, how do they find that out? There's just that many people Well, it's the boner that lasts for 20 hours. Yeah, right. Which, again, you don't want. <laughs> that is definitely not one you want. All right, pulmonary edema. Yeah, so same, same, same principle that we just talked about. So if the brain, the problem is that all the pipes are, are way too, they're big, and it's delivering way too much blood flow, making that your brain's hurting and swelling and causing issues. In the lungs, the pipes are actually constricting, and that causes the pressure to go through the roof. At a certain point, the pressure gets so high, so high that you can imagine the little pipes spring a leak. Yeah. All right, so I'm simplifying this tremendously. There's a lot more going on here, but that's basically what happens. And where the pressure is highest, we see pulmonary edema starting to form. And that's this white pattern you see on the x-ray. And that's one of the more common causes of death in high-altitude situations, right? Yeah, if your lungs fill, fill up with fluid, and if the underlying problem was not enough oxygen getting into your bloodstream, right. and now your lungs are filling up with fluid, you can see that's going to cause what's um, known as yeah. a, a vicious feedback loop. <laughs> positive feedback loop, which yeah, is not yeah. going to end well. No. Interestingly, notice that excessive vasoconstriction and excessive vasodilation both lead to edema. Right. Yeah. That's well, the other funny. piece that I didn't really tell you is that with your body response to hypoxia, lack of oxygen, by ramping up inflammation, your body says, whoa, I'm under attack. Mm -hmm. And your, your white blood cells mobilize. Uh, your inflammatory cytokines, TNF-alpha, other mm -hmm. ones, they get ramped up, and all of a sudden, your capillaries, which typically hold fluids, they open up little gaps. That, this is useful when you have a little infection. The gaps in the capillaries allow the white blood cells to, to make their way out to the site of infection, to <laughs> gobble up the bacteria, and do their business. But if it's happening throughout your entire body, right. we have badness. <clears throat> so I think that with high-altitude exposure, us lowlanders, what we're seeing is we're seeing a sort of a global... Uh, you know, a problem of, of every body tissue is exposed to hypoxemia, and we don't deal with that very well. We deal much better if it's just in a, a specific spot. Right. It's almost like, um, so we have the, these adaptations <clears throat> to deal with certain problems at low altitude, like if we have an infection or whatever, this is a normal mm -hmm. mechanism that happens to help us through that kind of thing. But then being at high altitude, it's it kind of seems, it's like an edge case, like if you're testing a new product or whatever you're looking for edge cases that help you figure out where the the outliers are it seems like a similar paradigm i suppose for the programmers out there <laughs> so let's let's move on to some superheroes <clears throat> blood we got some blood did we talk about blood yet did we finish well, the blood let's let's uh we'll, we'll get into blood here okay Hemoglobin. Well, we have more blood at altitude. That's the bottom line. Yes. All right. So this is a slide that I put together with Cynthia Bell, who is one of the authors of, uh, does, she's done all the great work as far as I'm concerned. There are others, of course, but she's really done the amazing stuff. And she's out of Case Western Reserve. And in, oh, yeah. This is Cleveland. In, uh, Cleveland, yeah. And she studies uh, Tibetans, mostly. Oh, cool. Um, Very cool. And if you look there, she's got some, uh, so there's no Tibetans on this slide. And that will, for reasons which we'll show you in a sec, but the La Paz, Bolivia is at the, at the extreme. Mm -hmm. And what this shows you that is that if you plot hemoglobin, that's a measure of red, red cell number or density, and you plot <laughs> against altitude, and we put hemoglobin on a log scale, 
you actually get a nice linear That's relationship. That's really nice, yeah. It's, it's almost perfect. So it has, Here in Albuquerque, we'd be like kind of somewhere in the, the middle well, where that Denver, gap is. you can find Denver, and it's more or less right, and we're the same altitude as Denver. Yeah. I think it's that green dot. Right? Yep, the green okay, one right in the, in the middle. middle. Yeah. Yep. All right, so this is kind of this word, this is a built-in feature, all right? Is it a feature? Is it a bug? Right. You know, it can, it can be yeah, both. Yeah. But we get, when we get ex exposed to, we call it hypobaric hypoxia, that's not enough oxygen because of low partial pressure of, of, the, of the air. By the way, I, I garbled the partial pressure of oxygen earlier. It's 160 at sea level, mm -hmm. 160 millimeters of mercury. Got that, folks? 160 millimeters of mercury. That's important that's because we may be pressure. comparing partial pressures as we go along here. Yeah, but we'll, we'll see if we can, we'll see how mathy we can make this. Not very. <laughs> Isn't there another, is it hematocrit that also yeah, goes yeah, up? Yeah. Because I know just, my hematocrit is a little bit elevated when I'm here. It's in essentially town. two ways to measure the same thing. Okay. And when you get a CBC, you get a white blood cell count. Right. You get a hemoglobin, <clears throat> a hematocrit. Both those measure the red blood cells, and you get platelets. Gotcha. Yep. Because yeah. I remember getting the last time I got blood work done, seeing that it was like elevated, and then I was like, oh, I'll. Google and find out what that is, and then it's like common in places at high altitude. In normal huh. blood cells, the yeah. uh, hematocrit will be about three times the hemoglobin. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's a good rule of thumb. Good to know. But yeah, well, this but this this graph is is useful because it tells you that what's normal depends on where you are. It's normal for us, all three of us here at altitude, right. to have a higher hemoglobin than someone at in Los Angeles or Cleveland. Right. And for someone, say a European living in La Paz, Bolivia. It's going to be higher still. Very cool. Yeah, yeah, they're like way up they're there. Off the charts. Interestingly enough, the so I I feel like the place that a lot of people think of as super high altitude is Machu Picchu, mm -hmm. and it's only at like seven thousand feet. It's like seventy five hundred. You sure? Yeah. So you might want to talk a little bit about why don't okay, we? I, have, I haven't been there. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, I've never been, but I I remember finding that out, and I was the like the Inca Trail. Yeah. So oh, a normal man. hematocrit would be. On the couch. <laughs> right. I will. I will make sure. Forty-two-ish for a normal hematocrit. Why don't we all just have a higher hematocrit? Why don't yeah, we all 79, just have 7,972 feet. That I had no idea. Yeah, so. it's oh, like uh, remarkably this, this, not this that tall. This was so great. I, I learned so, so much from coffee <clears throat> and Kate every day. Yeah, I just I just think about it and I'm like, man, I want to go there and I could just do it off the couch. And yeah, you totally could. It's like going for a, yeah, like, a stroll in Santa Fe. Yeah, right? Like you, we can go up into the foothills and do a hike and it's about that same altitude. Yeah. But Coffee asked why, you know, hey, if you do better with more red cells at altitude, right. and that red cells <clears throat> equal oxygen carrying capacity. And athletic mm -hmm. performance. And athletic performance. So the cyclists do better or is it placebo effect? So the question is, why doesn't everybody just have it at the maximum high? Right. Energetics. It's costly. Yeah, it, it, it takes something. You get nothing is free in medicine yeah. or biology. Nope. So we know this, right? Or the cost life. here isn't really energetics. We get we have more energy available to us with a higher crit. Yeah. The cost is viscosity. The blood okay. gets thicker well, sure, and sludgier. Yeah. And whenever the, blood moves more slowly, just like when people in a hallway slow down, they immediately clump up, pull out mm. their iPhones and clog the hallway. That's the true. same thing happens in our blood vessels. Great analogy. Those pesky cell phones. Yeah, those pesky cell phones. Really and actually, good. In, hypoxic, in hypoxia, independent of the number of red cells, your, your cells become sludgier. The cell walls are stiffer, and they're more likely to clump up. Take that far enough, That's and it's sickle cell. Yeah. Yeah. Really great <clears throat> question from, from Drop Air. Um, how long do you have to live in high altitude for, for us to see these kinds of things? So us, us people? Just we in see, general, people, yeah. Three right. weeks. But let's, so let's imagine that someone, let's say us. Yeah. That we decide that we want to go skiing up at Taos. And Taos, the ski valley is at about 10,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And you can go up from there. And the highest peak in New Mexico, Wheeler Peak, is at 13,000... It's like 13,800. Eight. It's yes. like just shy of right, a 14 Right, right, yeah. You know, that when they're drawing the map, they're like, we're not going to give New Mexico a single 14. Nope. We're going to give them all to Colorado. Yep. So we got a short change. Anyway, we did. it's high. It's so we'll see changes in gene expression <laughs> that happen almost immediately. And oh, wow. we'll see physiologic changes that you can measure right off the bat. Our respiratory rate's going to go up. <clears throat> our heart rate's going to go up. Both those allow you to bring more oxygen in mm -hmm. and circulate around faster. These are things that happen really fast. The catecholamines, so the, uh, your, your sympathetic nervous system, that gets ramped up. You get more mm -hmm. stress hormones. All these things we can see right away and it allows you to cope with the stress 
in a matter of hours. That's crazy. Yeah. For red cells, you probably have to spend, <coughs> I'd say, three, four, five. It's a matter of days. You're looking at yeah. days for, you know, they have to be produced in your mm -hmm. bone marrow, they have to be, be shunted out into the circulation. Right. That takes time. <clears throat> so, but it will happen, and it will happen over a period of days. And it's a little bit faster, I believe, to come back down, right? You, the effects that you see at high altitude go away So losing that acclimatization? I think that's true. Yeah. I'm not expert enough to say. Um, I've heard that that's true. Yeah. Um, so, so, so this is, yeah, maybe less This is acclimatization. So this like is that. not genetic adaptation. Right. This we all have this built thing. in. Yes. Again, and it is, we'll say for, for a skier <clears> who <throat> wants to spend a week up at Taos Ski Valley, these are a good thing. It allows you to have adequate oxygen right. to your heart and your brain while you're up there having a nice little ski vacation. Of course, for some skiers that push it and come up from Texas, we like to pick on Texans, but there are a lot of Texans that come to New Mexico um, and go skiing. Mm -hmm. A lot of them end up in, this, in the medical clinic and they got that pulmonary edema. And instead of sending them home, what they will do a lot of times is deliver an oxygen tank to their hotel room. No and they, way. they're able to breathe with oxygen, and that, that saves their ski vacation. And so getting the supplemental oxygen, again, mimics being at a lower altitude. Sure. That's what it does. How funny. I know that um, I'm pretty sure along the Inca Trail, going up to Machu mm -hmm. Picchu, there's like oxygen bars and stuff. I would hope so, so 7,000 feet. Yeah. Going that's, up to that's the crazy. crest of Mount Everest, there's frozen yeah. bodies. <clears throat> yep, yeah. lots Just, of them. There is a limit. 200 now, yeah. I think. Over 200. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's, definitely, there's definitely a limit. So there's sites to, to see what we can, yeah. what we can accomplish. Yeah. All right, so that's acclimatization. Yes. So here's the difference between acclimatization happening minutes to days. Uh, there are, if you're born at altitude, all right, I was born in Boston, but if you're born in Albuquerque, you may, your body may actually develop differently as a result of being born at, maybe not Albuquerque, but certainly if you're born in Santa Fe or Taos. Like chili doesn't hurt. Exactly. Although that's probably climatization. Okay. I don't know. That's a good, that's a good question. Red chili or green chili. That's or the, both. That is the question. Have you guys heard of the like high altitude masks that people wear when they're working out? Yeah. I. So the idea about mm. these is they restrict air coming in mm -hmm. so that when you inhale, you're ex inhaling against a yeah. certain amount of resistance. And it's meant to mimic training at higher altitude. Interesting. I would be very worried about pulmonary injury with that and I, things like pulmonary edema yeah. and stuff. I, I don't weird. like those. Uh, but it's, it's a way of, of <clears throat> almost doing a little body hack where sure. you are uh, you know, doing a behavior that has the same effect as doping. Right, you're making yourself right. get more more red blood cells. Because presumably you'd be competing or whatever at low altitude, but you've right. got a little. If extra you're working bump. at the upper yeah. limit of your oxygen metabolizing capability, you're going to increase it anyway, and that may include an increase in your hematocrit. Mm -hmm. This isn't going to increase it more, but you do risk brain and pulmonary damage. So, and, and hopefully I we'll get to this. Recommend them. It turns out your spleen also is a reservoir for red blood cells. Yeah, you could have a badass. This is totally spleen. cool. Spleens aren't just throwaway organs, guys. Right, so not just for surgeons anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we know people that get splenectomies. I have a, a childhood friend who yep. he was riding his bike, wasn't was looking and talking to his friend, went straight into a stop sign. Next thing we know, his spleen's gone. Oh dang! Bummer. I had right? a friend growing up who had an enlarged spleen. Oh, mononucleosis or thalassemia. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think it might have been. It was really? a it was a chronic. Oh condition cool. I think congenital so oh. yeah all right so the spleen acts, acts as a reservoir for these red blood cells <laughs> and it can pump them out when they're needed this does not seem to be such an issue for altitude you know I know this because Cynthia Bell was on on a on science Friday and talked about this mm -hmm. when she was asked about it but uh, it is important for diving and so we'll get to the diving superpowers here in a second cool so it takes generations to have. Yes. I think the question was how many, perhaps how many generations does it need? Do you need to evolve a way to, to cope with these things? Right. And the answer is a lot. Yeah. All right. And so the more the better. And just to be to kind of give a little bit of definitional background here um, with what we're talking about, the way we define evolution, at least the way I have heard it, is is allele frequency change over time, and that's it's generally over generations. And so that means that 
whatever your allele is that you're looking at, the frequency of that allele either goes up or goes down over time. See, now I would have lumped that in with genetic drift and <clears throat> sorting and selection, so natural selection. But evolution has more forces than natural selection. Right, I'm describing yeah. natural selection specifically, yeah. and that is one of four <clears throat> mechanisms of evolution. And I would just say that from the, from the perspective of function, and when we're talking about people who are functionally better able to cope with a specific thing, so in this case high altitude, then we're, that doesn't happen by any other mechanism but natural selection. Right. You have to have selection for that to happen. Yeah. Drift is not going to get you there. No, but mutation can help. Mutation can help, but we don't necessarily influence the basic rate of mutation that happens. No. It, mutation doesn't happen because we need it. You just hope that it's going right. to. Right. You just hope you get a lucky it one. It just yeah. happens at a It's like a looking for that one rate. great card when you're playing Magic the Gathering. Yep. Exactly. That's very true. Very true. <laughs> Always the perfect analogy. <laughs> All right. Okay. Here's, some, here's our superpower, people. So the Andeans. There's Machu Picchu. All of 7,000 feet. Almost eight. It's Low almost altitude. Eight. <laughs> I know, but it's yeah, nothing. Yeah, it's like, it's nothing. It's, uh, it really is. It's it's. When Joe is. stands up, he hits that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I would really like to go there. People that have visited New Mexico or live here, it is, you know, about the, the elevation of Taos, but maybe a little, little yeah. bit lower. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I bet Taos so is a little So not the Ski Valley, but the town of Taos. Mm, Peruvian potatoes. They have lots and lots of different kinds of potatoes. Yeah, so that is the birthplace of the potato. Yeah. They've got, there's, it's something like a hundred different varieties or something like that. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous. Popeye's from there. I am what I am. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Starch puns. <laughs> so how do the Indians do it? All right. So here's the punchline for the Indians. Yes. Um, they make more red blood cells. Yep. All right. So they do what we do, but they do a little bit more of it. So if you look at an Andean living at, at uh, high altitude. 400 types of potatoes. Oh, oh my, my God. That's so much more than I thought. Inst instant... Oh. Uh, Feedback. So if I went and in the Andes with these guys for like, mm -hmm. let's say a year, mm -hmm. their crit would still be higher than mine. <clears throat> On average, uh, an Andean population will, at a given altitude, will have a higher mm -hmm. hemoglobin or hematocrit than a lowland European population. And what about when somebody from uh, high in the Andes, whose family is from high in the Andes, lives in the lowlands for a year or two? Does their uh, crit normalize or does it remain higher than the population around them? What I'm looking yeah. for is, is this actually a population attribute or is it just... or is This it is a population attribute. There, there is evidence <laughs> of genes that are responsible for the higher hemoglobin right. in the native people that live at these high, high altitudes. And it confers <laughs> a, uh, a better ability to have more red blood cells at altitude. Um, but I do think that there's, they also have a, will have a lower hemoglobin, hematocrit, when they go down to lower elevations. And in terms like of us. allele frequency, yeah. this is what you'd predict. People yeah. who can't make this adaptation just don't get to have as many babies up there. Yeah. Right. Hey, you want to go to the prom? Yeah. Oh, thanks for asking. Nobody ever asked <laughs> me. I'm a little winded. <sighs> to <Right>. the prom. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about reproduction, people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's all about the reproduction. And I believe um, people at high altitude... Um, they also, their lungs get a little bit bigger, I believe. Well, that's, that's the next group. Oh, okay. But so, no, that's, yeah, that's true sure even for us. Andes. For your lowland Europeans that are born at, say, in the Rocky Mountains, um, at <laughs> high altitude, if you measure the anterior-posterior chest right. distance, mm -hmm. it's actually greater. It is bigger. So they get a little bit more barrel chest. It's a plastic adaptation yeah. similar to COPD, actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that can happen developmentally or after prolonged exposure. Right. Yeah, because <clears throat> yeah, I, I knew that in just in skeletal remains, we, we typically expect to see more barrel-chested rib cages um, in people yeah. from high altitude. So. Got a, it's terrific having an anthropologist perspective. Yeah. Not just an Bones. anthropologist, Bones an evolutionary cool. anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Schrodinger's king, thank you for that follow. I just saw it, sorry for the delay. What did they say? They followed. Oh. So, yes. Nice. Um, all right, next. Oh, all right, just the red cells. cells. We've talked about them. There's it more of them. It looks like a pool cushion. <laughs> it looks it looks like an artificial red blood cell. <laughs> yeah, Actual right? size. It does. Yeah? 
It's got like a seam. It's got on the, the seam. Inside. What's up with the seam? You know? This is, this is an object that's made out of foam, clearly. Like, Somebody took this a is picture a of a toy ball. red cell. This is a stress <laughs> ball in the shape of a red red blood cell. I guarantee it. Guarantee it. So in real life, we don't think that red blood cells have seams. I don't I don't believe so. Right. <laughs> that might be a science paper though, if you right. figure that out. <laughs> what sort of person would use that for a stress relief ball? I'm squeezing a, or like those hearts. They're squeezing a heart for stress relief. Uh, an ironic cardiologist. Uh, okay, moving on. Bad joke. Um, right, so which of these okay. is not like the others? That, that's a good way to look at it. And the, the, the which of these, which is not like the others, are the Amira. The Amira. And so on the x-axis, we see hemoglobin concentration. If you go about halfway up to where it says 50, that's the middle of the bell curve. This is a different way of looking at a bell curve. And they're, they're pushed over to the right, which means they have, on average, a higher hemoglobin. There you so go. So this is males. And I think there is a separate slide for females, but there may not be. This is such an unusual yep. structure yep. of graphs, you may want to explain what same you're looking in, at. Same in females, It's a frequency roughly. distribution. Well, it's, an, it's a cumulative graph rather okay. than the bell curve people yeah. are used to seeing right. is what I was yep. getting at. Right. But if you look at that 50% on the y-axis, follow with your line over, that would be the middle of the bell curve. Right. Because the so, mean is, is 50% of the variation. And we have to ask, I think this is Cynthia Bell's work, why she decided to present her data in this way. It does make it obvious that the Amira are different. So why do we separate out males and females when we're looking at this? Audience? Good question. Why? Which sex has more red cells? I and actually why? don't know the answer to this. I would guess that women do because of menstruation. Eh. Or no? Okay, I don't know. Men have more red, red men have more red blood cells. Interesting. Than women. Why in is, general. Why is that? Do we know? Probably so a body composition thing. Although loss due to menstruation okay. could be part of that. Sure. Well, probably not that because in in the pre-industrial world. Mm -hmm. Women don't menstruate very often. They have. You're I don't think twenty to forty lifetime. Mm -hmm. I don't think it has anything to do with menstruation. Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's I'm more probably. I'm going to come across. Sure. Across. I think it has to do with body just composition. Bigger bodies, more blood cells. Not in just general. even bigger bodies, because you could because the hematocrit should scale, mm -hmm. right? Sure. It's just, you know, it's looking at numbers per unit volume. Right. Okay. So yeah, yeah that a makes bigger sense. person should have more red blood cells, but a bigger person may not have a higher hematocrit. <clears throat> so. The reason why men have more red blood cells than women probably has to do with male-male uh, competition and the fact that it is, it, is, it is a fact that if you look at body composition, you mentioned this, that males have more muscle tissue than women. Mm -hmm. And there is, there is an energetic need to deliver oxygen to those muscles and the muscles are used both for fighting, hunting, procuring food, other sorts of things and there is a sexual dimorphism there. Um, so this, that is part of the reason why men have more red blood cells. So what if you have a... This is a hypothesis. Well, it's know? testable. It's testable. Theoretically, because what if you have a female bodybuilder who's building tons you and tons of muscle? You probably don't need to go that far. A very higher. athletic woman. Yeah. Sure. Uh, a college athlete. Well, this, Scholarship right, athlete. this is mediated, the mechanisms. That's the evolutionary reason, right? This is the ultimate reason. The proximate reason is that these things are mediated by testosterone, at least in part. Right. So sure. if I give myself a shot at testosterone or You'll probably um, I'll probably that. make yeah. more red blood cells as a result and more muscle <clears throat> but the evolutionary reason has to do with uh, these other evolved differences makes sense yeah anyway we're different I did not know that we're different I learned we're different. a thing girls are different girls are different than boys explains so sometimes <laughs> sometimes sometimes not yeah so you can't you can't answer these questions without without seeming sexist but um, it is it's a fact so slight yeah. tangent, I've asked yeah. bunches of classes, mm -hmm. how many of you think boys and girls are different? All the hands go up. Keep your hand up if you're willing to explain that difference. Every hand disappears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Well, you can just say it has to do with natural selection and the fact that uh, women have eggs and men have sperm. And there's differential investment in offspring. Yep. I'm going to want to take and that drives there. And that drives different competition for mates. Right. <laughs> and that drives a whole bunch of yeah, other stuff. Yeah, my gender studies professor will hear about this. Yeah. Well, that's so yes, the thing he or is she like, will. Let's, not, let's not go into this, but mm -hmm. there is a difference between sex and gender. So that, that explains a lot of the, the confusion about this mm -hmm. because most people assume that you're talking about gender and that's not the case. Yeah, gender has a much 
So the specific right. term for what we're talking about. These, these are sex differences. These are sex differences. Sex, right. sex, sex. Yep. Okay. I love it when you talk <clears> that way. <laughs> Sexy times. <laughs> and moving on. <laughs> Here's All the right. science paper. Yeah, so this was, when was this published? By Carlos um, Manger. 1930, I think. I can't find Anyway, it was a long time ago. Oh, 1942. 42. I couldn't quite see the date. So Carlos Manger said, hey, wait a second. We're seeing this problem. These people that live in the Andes, they got way too many red blood cells, and sometimes they get pushed over the edge. And these, so not, not only do they have, they kind of fall off that distribution. They're way off on, on one tail of it, and they have so many red blood cells that it's making them sick. They turn <clears throat> reddish purple. They can't walk because their lungs are full of red cells. Their brains are sludging. Their brains are not Yikes. working. They're sluggish, and they have a very rapid mortality. So Manger's disease, named after him. So the way oh, you can okay. think of this is that they're, in an effort to adapt to the lower partial pressure of oxygen, they're playing a game of chicken with their blood viscosity. This is a group for whom smoking, by the way, would be even more lethal than it is for the rest oh, of yeah, us. Oh, yeah, for sure. Good point. That's right. So anyway, there's a cost. So I look at the red cell thing as, hey, I need to deal with not enough oxygen molecules in the, in the air that I'm breathing. How am I going to cope with this? I, hey, I have this built-in way of dealing with low oxygen. That's to make more red blood cells. Let's amplify that a little bit and make, even, make it even more. And then I can cope with living at high altitude. I can exercise, have babies, mm -hmm. whatever it is that I can do. So I look at that. In the, in the universe of solutions to this problem, that's the low-hanging fruit. Right? right? That's the easy solution. But easy things come with a cost. And the cost is Manger's disease. It's, it's, a, it's an issue. But for I don't want to pick on the people in the Andes, but you took the easy way out, and this is where you pay for it. <laughs> I mean, so it, this seems to me like a case of, of balancing selection in a way. Because if you go too far mm -hmm. with the adaptation, you, you end up with additional problems. So you've got kind of a sweet spot where well, you're going to you, have the best fitness, yeah. the optimized fitness in this, area, in this area, and potentially beyond that, or not all the way up to that point, you will have lower fitness. Well, it's worth thinking about the fact that every solution to a problem <clears throat> comes with unintended right. consequences, yeah, costs. Yeah, for sure. And there are push, limits. That will push back. Yeah, you'll have selection from a red blood cells, but it's going to hit a wall at some point. Mm -hmm. So that, that would balance it out. Right. Yeah, good point. All right, what's next? Tibet! All right, so everything we talked about the Andeans, you can just forget about it for the Tibetans. <laughs> all right? They, they examined that low-hanging fruit. They checked it out. They're like, nah, not going to go yep. there. All right? So the Tibetans don't <laughs> make more red blood cells than us genetic lowlanders. That's, okay. That's what's different about them. So that's kind of cool. And so Cynthia Bell has done this. She's actually shown that Tibetans have evidence for selection for genes that lower the hemoglobin hematocrit. Really? Yeah, that's her most recent research. Oh wow, that's crazy. Which is nuts. This would be the, um, <laughs> say it in a minute here. And it still is a bit mysterious exactly what the Tibetans are up to. Right. Hmm. So, but I'll tell you a little thing about the Tibetans. So they don't take the, take the easy way out and, and make more red blood cells, but they are still superheroes because they tend to breathe more often. And if you remember when we talked about the things that give you the mountain sickness, the brain swelling, the lung leakiness and all that, mm -hmm. they're relatively resistant to that. They don't have the hypoxia-driven vasodilation in the brain. And then they also don't have the hypoxia-driven pulmonary vasoconstriction. So the things that make us happy and healthy and better able to deal with infection down here, they have they have different solutions to those problems. So you solve one problem and you end up with another one, even right. for the even for the Tibetans. Yeah. So what they have is a blunted um, the human gene endothelial PAS domain protein that's what I was one say. EPAS one EPAS one. What this is the thing that Super says specific. if you see low oxygen, make more red cells. And they have a blunted version of this gene, the yeah. less active version right. of this gene. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. So just amazing. You know, they are super powered. Because if you look at, we have a Nepalese. So we have Sir, Sir Edmund Hillary and oh, Tenzing yeah. Norgay, who's a Sherpa. Yep. So just in general. This um, is Hillary of the, the Hillary Step, right? Yeah, Hillary Step. And the, these are the first two that climbed Everest uh, ever as far as we know. Yep. And the Sherpas do way better at this. There was a, when, when, the, when Beijing held the Beijing Olympics in 20 whatever it was, <clears throat> they sent an expedition off of Han Chinese and, and ethnic 
Tibetans, mm -hmm. um, so people that live in the Himalayas. And the Tibetans did way better than the Han Chinese in summiting. And the Sherpas, who also live in the live in the neighborhood, there's a bunch of different tribes of high altitude people that live in the Himalayas. They all share mm -hmm. the same kinds of genetic adaptations to high altitude, um, but they do better than Europeans. Right. We kind of suck at climbing Mount Everest. There you go. If you 200 want to climb Everest. bodies, I'm just saying. Yeah. I know. Uh, there was another yeah. recent kind of sad story yeah. in that's showing that there are more Sherpas, the lethality for Sherpas, even though they do better than the rest of us, doesn't make you immune from rock falls or falling into a crevasse right. or yeah, um, slipping off a mountainside. And they have had uh, very, very high mortality over the last few years. Yeah. They're not paid enough. Or, no, or, uh, certainly not. My, my friend um, and occasional podcast co-host, Daryl Macias, um, has spent some time uh, with folks from here at the University of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And there's a training center where they're actually training the Sherpas to be safer on the mountain. Oh, wow. Learning mountain skills, basically giving the, we have a, we have a diploma in mountain medicine that we teach right here yep. in New Mexico. And uh, they do the same kind of training, but even at a, at a higher oh. level for folks in the, Sherp, the Sherpas in Very uh, cool. Nepal. Speaking of superhumans, I think Daryl might uh, actually qualify. He definitely does. <laughs> He's not like the rest of us, that's yeah. for sure. He is a freakishly rugged individual. Yeah. His idea of fun is to take a 25-pound pack out into the mountains for a couple of weeks yeah. and just survive on whatever he can find. Yep. Um, when the rest of us, when well, I didn't go, but when uh, the DMAT people were going to uh, Haiti, this is the these big disaster medical assistance and, team. Yeah. yeah. Uh, big trucks and vans and stuff full of equipment. Daryl just shows up with a 25-pound backpack, part of which was his mm -hmm. ultrasound machine. You yeah. know? So, I mean, wow. that's, that's his idea of fun, is living on nothing. <clears throat> yeah. I caught a rat last month. Hey, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's not, not for me, but all the more power to him, I guess. Yeah. Um, I and the, the isn't the Hillary step, like, partially broken now? It, I, like, it, it of, collapsed. Yeah. Yeah. It's the famous it's the uh, last, last like, technical rope spot yeah. that you have to kind of gear up for on yeah. Everest. It's not speaking from personal experience. No, yeah, me neither. But, <laughs> but yeah, it crumbled recently. Yeah, that's that's a bummer. And yeah. it's like a super historic spot, too. I have to put on a jacket guy. to watch that kind of thing on TV. I know, right? Mm -hmm. For real. That's how I feel. Like Fargo? I had to put on a jacket to watch Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> What a great film. Lungs. So, yeah. so, they had, so the Tibetans, the short answer is they have a pulmonary. This clip art is just really amazing. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's so they got They have bigger lungs, and they take more breaths per minute. So they have a, they have a, a, a larger minute um, ventilation, which I think is shown in the next slide. Here we have the Amira. Here are the actually the Andeans. So just compare this slide to the next one, and you can see we go from the Amira to the Tibetans. Woo! The scales are a little bit different. But the Tibetans wow. are able to ramp it way up, and they're able to breathe basically move way more air in and out of their lungs. A lot more variation, bloodings. too. There's a lot more variation. So, like, this that. is relatively sort of constrained. Yep. And then there's that one random outlier. Yeah. But and it's the adaptation that they're resistant to alkalinization. Like, why can they ramp it up more than I can? Oh, is it because yeah. they don't become right. alkaline when right. I do? Yeah, so for, so for medical mm. people out there, when you breathe... Uh, you know, we, we, we take on oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide. So if you breathe uh, faster like and you hyperventilate, which some of us do, and then you get kind of the tingly feeling yep. in your fingertips and your mouth kind of feels kind of funny, that's hyperventilation. And you get those changes in part because you're breathing off the carbon dioxide, changing your entire pH and your blood chemistry. Right. So Coffee's question is, what does that do for Tibetans? I don't know. I'm going to have to ask Cynthia Bell. They must so have something. If you want to experience this at home, inflate an air <laughs> mattress as fast as you can. Right. <laughs> Right. Please do so safely. So don't worry, they'll pass out before they die. Okay. So if Let's anybody has been that. to Ecuador, if you've been to Quito, Ecuador, it's at over 10,000 feet. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will take uh, Diamox, <coughs> which is, um, well, it's a carbonic anhydrous inhibitor. Mm -hmm. um, it, it actually prevents you from, it, it compensates for this increased respiratory rate. And it allows you to hold on to. <laughs> I know, I've looked at this a handful of times. Your kidneys you don't pee off don't, by carbon, it is what yeah, it makes you do. Yeah, you don't dump as much hydrogen in your, in your, in your uh, urine. And it changes your kidney chemistry. It allows you to kind of balance out your pH, but it makes beer taste terrible. Really? Right? Yeah. And you do these little tingly sensations in your, in your fingers and your toes. It's a weird, it's, all, it's, all, it's a drug How side effect. How funny. Yeah. Why beer specifically? Any carbonated beverage. Okay, so anything the carbonated. Most, most carbonated uh, beverages okay. you're drinking on a on a expedition involve beer. Got it. At least for me. Yeah, yeah. Trail beers. Uh huh. Yeah. 
but Tibet's, crazy. Tibetans breathe faster. Diamox is what it's called? Diamox. All right, I'm going to hold on to that one. Mm -hmm. D-I-A-M-O-X. All right, new journal or another paper. Yeah, so the Tibetans, they don't get the pulmonary hypertension. <clears throat> hey, they don't squeeze down the way that we do. Yeah, bring wine. There you go. <clears throat> Simple fix. Yeah, wine, whiskey. Yep. Yeah, anything not carbonated. Okay, here we go. They do everything better than we do. They bring in more oxygen. They breathe better. They have bigger lungs. They sleep better. If anybody's tried actually sleeping at high altitude, you toss and turn. <clears throat> you wake up and you're, you know, you're, you're not getting enough oxygen into mm -hmm. your body. And it causes very, very poor sleep. That's not, that's a, the sleep issue actually is a, is a feature of mountain sickness. But if that's all you have, it's actually kind of an expected thing. Sure. It doesn't even fall, it doesn't even you know, rise to the level of acute mountain sickness. Still enough to suck the fun out of it, though. That's for sure. <laughs> who doesn't like a good night's sleep? Hey, Dodgy. Oh, so is this the thing you were talking about? Tibetan versus well, I think, Han Chinese? Yeah, the Han Chinese. So the, the issue with the Tibetans is, they have bigger babies at altitude compared to any other group. So, or saying it a little differently, they have less intrauterine growth retardation. That yeah. is, their babies are less smaller. Right. At so high in, altitude. In utero, if you don't get enough oxygen, your babies grow a little smaller. And we see it, we see that very dramatically in Han Chinese, Europeans to a lesser extent, the Andeans to a lesser extent, but the Tibetans actually they, they do the best. Near normal size. Biggest biggest babies. Cool. And then, of course, that's again baby size. We've talked about this a million times. Kind of equals childhood survival, equals reproductive success, and all that. So this is a having big babies is a superpower. Not the one I'd have asked for. Again, another thing that probably has a balance to it because if you have two big babies, then that could potentially cause some problems. Well, yeah, but if you notice, all the babies, as you mentioned, coffee are smaller <clears throat> than if they had been born at sea level. <clears throat> So when Tibetans have babies at sea level, do they have larger babies than would be considered average at sea level? No. Okay, so that's interesting. Yeah. So it's an adaptation that prevents the negative consequence without simply erring on the side of making them bigger. That's right. worth knowing. Yeah. You'd think, yeah, an easy way to do it is just make all your babies bigger, you know, no yeah. matter what the altitude is. Right. But they, in particular, they're, but they're, better, they're coping better with the hypoxia. And all the lady Tibetans would be looking at you going, you think that's easier. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Thank you for for having the female perspective. You, yes. <laughs> Lucid, thank you for that. That's what C-sections are for, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Only if you do the, the swab to transfer microbiomes. Right, the vaginal swab, people. The C stands yes. for Chinese. In case you guys have not yeah. seen this before, um, there there is new research talking about how to uh, combat some of the sort of um, immuno problems that can come with uh, with having a C-section for the baby specifically. You generally have higher incidence of allergies, asthma, that kind of thing, and it's thought because you're not getting inoculated <laughs> with your mom's immune system during birth. And mom's microbiome. Vaginal right. flora. The microbiome, yeah, yeah. specifically. Need a little so, microbiome transfer. It's natural. Yeah, it's yeah. good. It's like Helps the first, good immune first system. big thing. However, I thought yeah. follow-up studies had to yeah, it's not like to seeding, confirm totally. the utility of that strategy. <laughs> well, it's brand new. We don't have any long-term. Yeah, only, they've only been doing this for a few years. Yeah, so yeah. file that, put that in the maybe box. It's, I mean, we need yeah. long-term studies on it, but the idea yeah. is that if you can sort of artificially transfer some of this microbiome, AKA a vaginal swab into usually I think it's the mouth of the baby, which the, sounds the super nose, gross, but like the baby doesn't care and the baby will, will maybe potentially benefit from it. Difference between so. C-section and vaginal delivery. Vaginal <clears throat> delivery. It is enough time to be C-section. What the hell? Right. <laughs> yeah, swab the deck. That's right. <laughs> swab the deck people. It's super gross, but, but it's actually like a really good idea to, to do that. That's that's the current wisdom. We'll see what the long-term benefits are potentially. Mm -hmm. So, You know what Tom Edison's wife said when he invented the light bulb? <clears throat> what did he say? It's two o'clock in the morning. Turn that damn thing off and come to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very plausible. <laughs> uh, can't you get that in a five-hour energy these days? <laughs> Pro yeah, do they have probiotic five-hour energies now? I'm sure they do. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. They could be a niche for you to, to enter. Mm -hmm. Could yeah. be an entrepreneurial opportunity. Yeah, right. Right. That's not for me. <laughs> Maybe Joe. You're the microbiome spokesman these days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, 
I like the idea. Yeah, yeah, for sure.